Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Yes, you don't have that competitive advantage that will get you into the NBA, but you could master basketball at any height. So these skills of basketball are completely unrelated to how tall you are, the actual skills. And now if basketball had height divisions, like, for example, fighting sports have weight divisions for obvious physical differences. Then we would have short players in all positions. And being the very best in the world is just that they would belong to different categories. They would be like the under six foot or the, like the under five five. Uh, and you'd be a master and you'd be in the NBA, but for that division. So it just happened that we made up basketball and it's imperfect. And every sport that we create is imperfect and it gives advantages to certain people that have certain physical attributes. Now on the mental side of it, yes, some people have the equivalent of what height is for basketball and we can't deny that. And that brings them to be the very best if they also put in the hard work. But mastery itself doesn't mean you're the very best in the world. It means you've mastered a skill and that's within anyone's realm. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Nick, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Srini, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So uh, I found out about your work uh, and your book by way of your publicist, all of which we will get into. Um, but before we get into that, uh, I want to start by asking you, where in the world were you born and raised? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Yeah, so I was born in Medellin, Colombia, and I lived um, a big chunk of my life there. I think um, what made the most difference is that I, I went through this middle middle school and high school that was very different from anything else. So it's not something particular about Colombia. It, it was just a particular high school. And we didn't have any teachers. The whole school was based on the ideas of Socrates, so um, the Hellenic method, thinking that we need to draw out knowledge through questions instead of imposing it. So we didn't have teachers. We had tutors. We There were no classes, no lectures. We had to study on our own. And one of the great things about that place is that we needed to take exam for every subject we studied. And the exam had to be passed with 90% or more. So it was based on excellence. And if you fail an exam, the whole point was like, look, you just um, didn't master the subject. So go back to it and restudy. And then you'll take the, the exam again. Mm -hmm. So I think that having that kind of education, it instilled in me this passion for knowledge and for learning things. Like I'm not afraid of picking up a book on any subject and just starting to learn. And it was because learning was never a drag. I mean, that's cool. Since you're learning on your own, it becomes a process of discovery instead of just uh, yeah. something that is imposed on you. So that's what sparked my my passion for knowledge and gave me the discipline to go after any subject that I wanted to study. Yeah. It, one thing I wonder about is in a you know, schooling environment like that, how do they structure a curriculum and how do they build structure around what you actually need to learn? So I think it, it was pretty similar to other schools where you will have, let, let's say, seventh grade math 
And then seventh grade math has maybe 13 different subjects that you need to cover. So that was the same idea. And you had study guides for every one of those subjects. And you had to take an exam for, for each one of them. And then you would only be studying about three subjects at a time. So you could be studying math, history, and geography. And until you finish one of those for the entire year, you couldn't move on to something else because one of the beliefs was, well, you go into physics and then to chemistry and then to math and then to geography. And at the end of the day, you can't remember anything. So it was kind of more focused and you need to work on three different subjects at a time or two different areas of knowledge at a time. Um, but we would cover everything that any other normal school would have. Yeah. So how how does the uh, structure and then sort of curriculum and format of uh, education, you know, similar to the one that you had, differ from normal education in Colombia? And is that any different from the way that we educate people here in the United States? No, I think the regular schooling system in Colombia is the same as in the States. Um, so it's just the regular classes and the regular curriculums. Um, it's all pretty much the same. This was this school was just something particular, and I just ended up there by chance because I missed the the calendar school as I'm moving from a different city. And this was the only school that would take anyone at at any time because you're going at your own pace. So technically, you could finish a grade in six months, six months, which I did for some of them, or it could take you eighteen months to finish one grade. It was really up to you. Um, you like the discipline was on you to do the things and you control the learning process, which was awesome. So what I wonder is, you know, in my mind, I wonder if that's effective for everybody because, you know, you go to school here in the United States and of course you have straight A students who are just overachievers and driven. And sometimes that's due to parental influence. If you're an Indian kid like me, sometimes just, just Mm -hmm. innate. Um, But what about the people who are not particularly motivated or, you know, don't have any sort of drive? Do they, fall apart in an environment like that? Or do they, you know, basically rise to the occasion? Uh, how do you deal with those types of people in that kind of environment? You had several scenarios. So some of them is uh, someone that was lazy or didn't have any motivation or didn't care. They would eventually leave the school because it would take them two years to finish one grade. So when they started doing the math, they realized they would graduate from high school at 24, 25. Um, so those people eventually said like, look, this is not for me. There were others that just had like, uh, problems concentrating in regular schools or it was annoying for them to have lectures. So when they had a system like this, they just discovered that it was just a matter of the learning method that was not working for them. And then they raced to the occasion. So it really varied from person to person. For me, like when I went to university and had to sit on lectures, that went so slow. Um, I almost yeah. couldn't get used to it anymore because when you study on your own, you're so focused and like, I couldn't understand why teachers would be teaching the same thing that was in the textbook. It's like, why do I need to do this twice? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would imagine the the way that you were, you know, educated in high school probably made college very easy for you because, uh, you know, I, I think that the way that we're typically taught uh, to sort of, you know, learn in high school is to memorize and regurgitate. I, I only know this because I've been spending a lot of time you know, digging into Sonka Aaron's book, How to Take Smart Notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I, I realize now is you you look back at, at something like college and, you know, I had this experience at Berkeley where I was a great student in high school uh, because in high school, it's actually not that hard to get good grades. All you have to do is, you know, show up, do what the teacher says, memorize information, regurgitate it on a test. But you get to college and you actually have to understand what the hell it's about. So, you know, I'll give you an example. I go into an economics class, right? And you learn, you know, laws of supply and demand. You go through, you know, problem sets, you know, with your TA. But then when you get to an exam, that information is presented in a context that you've never seen it before. And it's a real test of whether you understood or whether you memorized. And so I'd imagine for you having been taught that way, uh, you know, college must have been easy. But given that, you know, if you were tasked with redesigning the education system, either here in the United States or you know, even in Colombia, the, the standard education system, not the way that you were educated, mm-hmm. what changes would you make uh, to change education so that it leads to better outcomes for students? Well, there are different things. And I remember watching this, um, this talk from Sir Ken Robinson when he's talking about like redesigning the educational system because it it's still based on very much uh, the industrial age of kind of an assembly line type of thing where you put together people based on age other than anything else. In my school, we were 
um, different people in the same classroom, learning different things uh, from different ages, uh, studying different subjects. It didn't matter because you were in your own world. So um, that was good. And the thing that I, I would change the most, I think, is is the ratio between... I mean, right now in the school system, it's just one teacher and they're giving a lecture and that's the end of it. Um, I think that for proper education, you do need some guidance. You need some tutoring. You need someone in sort of a smaller groups. I, I wouldn't know how to design those groups, but I think, um, I don't think that the, the industrial system of just putting 30, 40 people in a classroom and having someone give a lecture works. It just doesn't. Um, learning is very different than that. Well, why do you think that it has sustained for as long as you have if, you know, there's so much evidence that it doesn't work and it's not ideal? It's hard to make changes at that scale. Um, people resist it and you have a system that, uh, I'd say, say this, that we really averse to change, especially when things work, regardless how inefficiently. So it works inefficiently, but somehow it kind of works. It does get some education to people, basic education. And if we look back to centuries ago, we're better off than we were then in, in terms of education, uh, especially for the masses. So the fact that it somehow is not entirely broken, that's what makes it harder for someone to say, this needs to be completely rethought of. So I think mm -hmm. that's what's holding yeah. it back, that to a degree, yeah. it does serve us. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. 
So one thing I uh, you know, wonder about is uh, cultural narratives around education. So in India, the cultural narrative around education is this is the ticket to everything. This is your key to success. This is your key to a good life. You go become a doctor, lawyer, engineer, and you won't ever have to worry about having a good life. That's basically what I jokingly call the Indian parent motivational speech. Right. Um, and I wonder, what is the cultural narrative overall about education in a country like Colombia? Like, what are the things that you were taught and what is the general public taught about the value of education in a country like Colombia? It was the same. So the idea is you had to go to school, you had to then go to college and then get a specialization or a master's. And then maybe, maybe you'll get a job. So the difference with Colombia is that the unemployment was so high that uh, you would you would sit in a cab and the person driving the cab would be a, a surgeon. And it just happened that there wasn't any more work. So you would try to push it even more on your education side to hope for an entry-level job, having master's degrees or PhDs. Um, so everyone thought that that was the only way. I think only now that you have this gig economy and more entrepreneurship and the idea of building your own enterprise, that things are changing. But um, yeah. when I was in college and when I was in high school, that was the idea. It's like you go to school, you get good grades, you go to college, same thing. And then... Hopefully you get a job, but it wasn't a certain thing. It wasn't like in the States back in the fifties or so when you were kind of guaranteed a job after college. Yeah. So I know this from having lived in Brazil for six months and um, having, uh, you know, a couple of friends who happened to be from Colombia, the gap between the rich and the poor in countries in South America is significant. It's not even like it is here because I remember in Brazil, you know, when somebody was considered rich, their parents basically owned a percentage of the country. It was like my, you know, parents export coffee and that's the, the exporting coffee is the side hustle, you know, for a rich person in Brazil or Colombia. And then they have some other business that makes, you know, millions. And of course it's like, wait a minute, you guys export like three fourths of the world's coffee. That's not a side hustle. Uh, and so I wonder what impact does that income gap between, you know, the wealthy and the poor, particularly when it's so extreme, end up having on how people are socialized, how they're educated, and then, you know, what their life outcomes end up being? A lot of resentment. So I remember I grew up in a nicer part of town and my parents were well off. And I remember with my brother, we wanted to go train uh, wrestling and jujitsu. We wanted to do mixed martial arts, but there wasn't mixed martial arts back then. So we were trying to train all these different things and combine it on our own. And the place where you would train those things, uh, there was only like one place, which was around soccer stadium. And people from all over the city would be training there. And for the most part, those leagues were made up of um, people like from poor neighborhoods or middle class who were trying to make it through sports. And they would hate us. They, they saw it in our face that we didn't have it as rough as them and they wouldn't want to train with us. And and it's not like we would lie about which part of the city we lived in, and but they could see it. Just in the way we spoke or the way we looked, there was something about us that, you know, we didn't have it as rough as them. So there was this resentment towards the rich or we're well off. Um, same when I was in school, many times I'll be ashamed of bringing my friends home because our, our parents' homes was really nice. And you had kind of this guilt and this stigma associated with the whole country's suffering, everyone's starving, and and you're pretty well off. So I think I grew up with that yeah. thing, but that's also why. Like later in life, I've never had an interest for luxuries because that was not the mm. way we wanted to live. We we didn't want to show off anything. We didn't want to own expensive things. It was just our house that was nice. But everything else was just regular. Yeah. Well, talk to me about sort of your post-college, post-high school trajectory that has led to where you're at today and to to writing this book. Yeah, so always being fascinated by learning and I take on hobbies all the time. But I was frustrated by how difficult it was moving from knowledge into skill. So one thing is knowing about something, knowing about a subject. And a different thing is knowing how to do it. So you can know a lot about painting theory, but not really know how to paint anything. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that, that was kind of the, the itch that began. It's like, I want to learn all these things, but it's so frustrating because it takes so long. And, and I started researching different books on learning and how we learn, how to learn. And my idea was to try to find a book that I eventually wrote because um, I couldn't find it that way. So 
the story goes, I started researching on learning science, how we learn, how to learn. And I wanted to put together a manual for the rest of my life. Something, something that I could get back to all the time is like, oh, I'm learning to play a new instrument or I'm learning this other thing. Um, let's go back to my manual and see what are the steps and how I, I should approach this. And after a couple of years of research, I figured, you know what, if I'm going to do all this work, I might as well solve this problem for other people and turn it into a book. But had I known the amount of work that was ahead of me putting together a book, I, I don't know if I would have done it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, it's something else. Oh, I, I read the book. I mean, it, it's incredibly detailed. And I remember thinking, how the hell are we going to actually cover all of this in one interview? So my thought was that what we could do is to basically run this framework that you've created for mastering any skill through one skill. And yes. since you brought up a musical instrument, let's use a musical instrument as an example. I you know, played the tuba for nine years, and it's kind of funny because I see some of this uh, you know, in the way that I, I actually learned. It just mm -hmm. was never deconstructed in this way. I didn't have a formal framework. So let's actually take the skill of learning a musical instrument. Let's just say somebody who's listening to this wants to play the guitar. You yes. break this up into you know several different uh, concepts in terms of you know the various things we need to understand in terms of principles of learning, myths and misconceptions, and then you go into the stages of learning. Let's start first with um, the myths and uh, misconceptions. Uh, you know, and I, I think the two that I want to actually start with are the left brain versus right brain and uh, the learning styles. Yes. All right, so that's something that has gone into our idea of how we learn, and it's just been popularized for long enough, but it's not it's not necessarily accurate. So the idea of the you're a left brain learner or, or left right brain learner or left brain learner. So we use both sides of the brain for almost everything. I mean, yes, one, some one side specializes in one thing, but pretty much when we're learning, we're using the entire brain. So what I criticize there in those myths is is the sales pitch of like, look, you need to know what's your dominant uh, hemisphere and then use that in your learning. Like, no, there are all the things that are way more important in the way we learn and how effectively we are as learners than that. Um, so it's been proven on psychological research that if it, it's just not really accurate that we learn from one side of the brain or the other. We use the, mm -hmm. all of our brain for almost everything. Now, the So... Yeah. So then we bring up learning styles, right? You know, I think that we have this idea that, you know, some people learn better, you know, auditorily, some people learn better visually. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that you also deconstruct that as a myth. You know, why do we have this myth to begin with? Well, it began as some teachers, because all of this comes from experience in classroom and not from rigorous research. Um, so at one point, they some people in the educational realm began to develop this concepts of like, oh, I think some of my students learn this way and some others learn that way. And then it became very popular. So the VARC system, like yes, visual, auditory, kinesthetic. And, but when, when they run research, something more organized to try to either prove or disprove those theories, like most of the studies show that that wasn't the case. I mean, we do have preferences in the way we learn but it doesn't mean that our preferences are the most effective method for us. So there are other things such as previous knowledge and or interest in the subject that play a more significant role than our learning style. So yes, some people mm -hmm. like to listen to audiobooks, other people like to, to read, but it it doesn't mean that the way you prefer to do it is the way that's best for you. Mm. So for the most um, part, we're all visual and we process visuals way more than auditory or kinesthetic. Yeah. So I, I think the one other myths and misconceptions piece that really intrigued me was this idea of you either have it or you don't. Yeah. And I think this is where, you know, I, I want to actually do a bit of a deeper dive because in some cases, I think that's true, right? Mm -hmm. You and I are not going to play NBA basketball with LeBron. Yes. Correct. We're just, I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what your athletic skills are. Mine are definitely not on that caliber. Uh, you know, no matter, you know, no matter whether I read everything in your book and put this all to work, there's no way in hell I'm ever going to play in the NBA. Yes. Uh, and so I think that I want to understand, you know, one is, is understanding the distinction of, okay, you either have it or you don't, but in some cases you don't. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how do you end up being honest with yourself about the cases where you don't? All right. So uh, let's take this apart. This is a great subject. 
So for starters, let's go with something. One thing is being the best in the world. Another one is being among the best. Another thing is being your best. So to be the very best in the world, let's say the very best swimmer that ever lived, you need a combination of genetics and coaching and having been born in the right place at the right time and all these other things. And you also need a lot of hard work. So you need a lot of things going on for you to be the very best in the world. Now, to be among the best, that's one level down. We have to remember that Michael Phelps wasn't the entire swimming team for the US. There were other really good swimmers there too. They weren't the very best in the world, but they're still pretty good. And then for you to be your best, you don't need anything else. You don't need genes on your side. You don't need luck. You need hard work, basically. That's for you to be your best. Now, your best might not make you um, in the top class of the world. So in the case of the NBA, like maybe your best would not get you to the NBA, but it will be your best. And also, basketball skills can be learned and mastered by anyone. Now, if you don't have the height, yes, you don't have that competitive advantage that will get you into the NBA, but you could master basketball at any height. So these skills of basketball are completely unrelated to how tall you are, the actual skills. Mm. And now if basketball had height divisions, like for example, fighting sports have weight divisions for obvious physical differences, then we would have short players in all positions. And being the very best in the world is just that they would belong to different categories. They would be like the under six foot or the, like the under five, five. <laughs> uh, and you'd be a master and you'd be in the NBA, but for that division. So it just happened that yeah. we made up basketball and it's imperfect. And every sport that we create is imperfect. And it gives advantages to certain people that have certain physical attributes. Now on the yeah. mental side of it, yes, some people have the equivalent of what height is for basketball. And we can't deny that. And that brings them to be the very best if they also put in the hard work. But mastery itself doesn't mean you're the very best in the world. It means you've mastered a skill. And that's within anyone's realm. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's actually get into, you know, this learning framework. Like I said, I think it would be incredibly difficult to deconstruct the entire thing from, you know, start to finish. Uh, But you kind of, you know, break this down into sort of explore, understand, memorize, practice, bridge, you know, performance feedback, and then, you know, getting into sort of overcoming challenges and mastery. And I realized trying to cover all of this in one interview would be damn near impossible because of how deep this rabbit hole goes. But let's just take, like I said, the skill of a musical instrument and deconstruct Mm -hmm. it through your framework. So if you, for example, were going to learn how to play the guitar or somebody listening to this wanted to learn how to play the guitar, um, had never picked up the instrument in their life, how would they begin and and how would they get to the point where they have some level of proficiency with it? Sure. So the first step that I lay out in the book is explore. And this is the idea of looking behind the glamour of the finished product the performance so maybe you saw your favorite musician in a concert your favorite guitar player and you thought well i want to learn how to play guitar well you have to remember that you're looking at the performance which is a very small part of what it involves in playing guitar there's uh, thousands of hours of practice mostly solitary practice repeating scales and going through chord progressions and things like that so the first step is kind of looking behind that curtain and see what it really entails to learn to play the guitar. Because if you do want to play guitar, you also want to learn how to play guitar, want to practice the guitar, which is sometimes not as fun. Um, I play guitar and it's uh, it was tough to sit down every day and go through your scales and go through your exercises. And sometimes you, you think or you would wish that it would be just playing on stage. <laughs> and that's not how it is. So another example, just before we move on to the next step is Many people that want to take on writing and they imagine going into a cabin in the mountains and just having the words flow through them (laughs) into the paper. They're like, no, man. (laughs) Okay. You got to look a little bit into it before you commit that this is what you want to do because the art of writing is actually rewriting and editing. And it feels like you're solving a puzzle that's fighting you. So um, we need to see behind that curtain and realize what really entails to then make the decision, is this really what I want to pursue? Do I really enjoy how this is practiced, how it's it's done, the day-to-day activity behind this skill? So that's the first thing. Now, let's go, imagine that you're going to learn how to play a song. And we'll go through the model and we'll go quickly through it. So let's say you're going to learn how to play a song and your teacher is saying, look, look, here are the chords. So you're going from A to, to D to C. Okay, so the first thing is understanding what you're going to be doing. You're going A to D to C. Like, all right, so those are the chords I'm going to do. Now you have to memorize that part because understanding is not the same as memorizing. That's why we can read a book, understand everything that it says, and then don't remember what the lessons a couple of days later. Understanding is about making sense of information, but it's not internalizing it. So for you to make use of information, then you have to internalize it by memorizing what you need to do. It's like, okay, so the chord progression is going to be A, D, C. Perfect. Now you sit down and you start practicing those changes. So you're going from one chord to the next and then back. And you can take it one piece at a time. And that's the practice side of it, where you're working each piece of this song, for example, or a scale um, until you feel you kind of have it mostly down. Now, Mm. going from practice to performance is too big of a step. Like going from maybe practicing those chords and those changes to then playing the song live that's way too much of a jump. So we need an extra step in between, which is called bridging. And this is a, a sort of simulation. So what you could do is once you practice the song enough and you kind of have it down, then you can play uh, alongside the actual song. So you can play on the song and you start playing it on top of it, kind of pretending like you're performing. 
So this is a way to prepare you for the real thing. And then the last step is perform. That's when you get to play the song for your own enjoyment and for other people watching or any other scenario. So in performance, you're not really learning. You're just executing what you learn how to do through the understanding, memorizing, practice, bridging. So that's kind of the, the process in a nutshell. And then you apply that to every th- single thing you're doing. You yeah. first understand what you need to do. Then you start memorizing those pieces. As you take them into practice, then you practice, practice, practice. Once you kind of have it down, you start um, simulating or bridging this idea of like, how would this be used in performance? And then finally you execute. So when you think about it, uh, going a little bit back, if you were doing, I put it in the book, an example of a jiu-jitsu um, move. But first you learn what are the moves you need to do. And you memorize them. Then you practice them. Then you practice with a partner, which would be the bridging or simulation. And finally, you go on a fight. So that's kind of how the learning process goes for everything you want to learn. Yeah. Well, so within each one of these phases, you also basically offered uh, strategies and principles for each one, right? Yes. And couple of the things that I want to do is first go into, you know, principles of memory where you, you know, make this distinction between a couple of different types of memory. Like you talk about the difference between declarative and procedural memory, Mm -hmm. um, recognition versus recall. And then, you know, these ideas of association, chunking, emotion, attention, repetition, domain specific memory and content versus location. Can you summarize that? for us <laughs> which i realize i'm asking you to summarize you know 60 pages in you know a soundbite so let's focus on two things one is the um recognition versus recall so um, if you meet someone at a party that person says the name and then you see this person again uh, maybe a week later and you recognize their face but you can't remember the name so what's happening well you're recognizing the face because you're you're running an input through a database you have in your mind. So as you see a face, it's like, have I seen this face before? And then your mind answers, yes, I have seen it before. I recognize it. But what happens with the name? You're not seeing the name anywhere written down. So it's much harder to bring back from memory, which is the recall. Um, so that's the idea. Sometimes we think we're studying when we just review things that we've studied before. We go through a book and like, oh yeah, I remember this. I remember that. No, no, you're recognizing the information, but you only know that you memorize it when you can recall it without any aid. So for example, if I sit down with someone and start explaining all the lessons in the latest book I read. So you realize that's a sort of testing and testing enforces our memory and also let us know what really stuck and what didn't. So if I start recalling those lessons and I'm teaching them to someone else, they're like, oh, I know where my, my gaps are. I know where I need to go back and I know what it's really committed to memory. And memory is so important because we have to remember that mastery or developing any skill doesn't happen outside of us. It happens on the inside. Let's say that you read a book on first aid and you understood everything about it. Um, but then someone on the street needs first aid and it doesn't serve you to remember where the book is on your bookshelf or what page you're supposed to review. You need the actual knowledge in that moment. So that's why memory is important. We can't just be with our guides and our books uh, the whole time next to us. We need to be committing um, information and knowledge to memory. It's really important. Yeah. So you have a couple of different strategies for memory, which are, you know, retrieval, spaced repetition, and elaborate memories. Uh, let, let's talk about retrieval and uh, elaborate memories. Spaced repetition, I think, is something that we've talked about before on the show. And mnemonics, I think, are, you know, fairly straightforward. Most of us really understand those. Mm-hmm. Yes. So practice retrieval is what I was explaining is a way of testing your knowledge. So this could be um, teaching to someone else. That's a form of practice recalling or you being you sitting down on your own and trying to remember the lessons of uh, something you studied. Um, Another way to do it, let's say for people who love reading, you can write questions next to a page. Let's say if you're reading the biography from Napoleon, just to say anything. And then you write down like when was the battle of waterloo um so then you go through the book and you see these questions like oh okay do i remember this information or do i not so it's a a very um personalized way of testing so we know that that's the best strategy to memorize is testing your knowledge because in the testing you're 
putting effort to remember, which strengthens the memory. And even if you get it wrong, by the time you get the answer wrong and then you read the, the right one, then you remember what it is. And now it's going to be stuck in your mind. Like, for example, one of the few things that I learned that I remember from college is one question I got wrong in an exam. So I couldn't remember it. I failed that question. And then when I got the exam back, it never went away. Like it's, the, it's one of the only things that I remember from college. That's how strong yeah. it is. So that's why it's so valuable to do testing. It shows where the mm-hmm. gaps are. It forces you to recall. That force you put behind it, that effort you put, strengthens the memory that did stick. And the ones that didn't stick, once you go back and, and do learn the part that you got wrong, it's going to have a stronger encoding in your mind. Yeah. Um, now let's talk about practice. You make this very clear distinction between practice and repetition. And, you know, it's funny cause I know this as a writer, right? Is mm-hmm. anybody can write a thousand words a day of just complete crap. And I know because I do that every day, but that's not where the real work happens. It's yes. like you said, in editing and, and rewriting and thinking about the things that I've written. And so you make this distinction between practice versus repetition. Can you explain that and, you know, uh, you know, tell us why people confuse the two. Sure. So let's use the playing guitar example. Uh, let's say that you already know how to play a song and then you are committing one hour practice a day to playing guitar. And for that hour, the only thing you do is playing the same song you already know how to play. Now, that's repetition. You're just repeating something you already know and it's not going to make you any better after a certain uh, point. So practice to be meaningful, you have to be striving to be better. To, to improve. So um, let's say if you're playing a solo, um, you'll be putting the metronome at a fast, faster speed to push your limits so you can play much faster. Now that's practice. It's forcing you to step out of your comfort zone to grow, which is very different from repetition, which is doing the same thing over and over. So many for many people that uh, take on a sport, like a weekend sport, and go hit golf balls all day, if you're not trying to improve, you're just repeating what you're doing. And in fact, you're solidifying a lot of the mistakes. So practice involves that you're kind of breaking your that comfort zone you have and trying to improve little pieces, in this case of your swing, instead of just hitting balls without any conscious effort. So that's why it's so different. Someone could be hitting those balls for years at a time and not get any better. Just like the way we've been driving for years and we don't drive any better then at a certain point, we stop <laughs> trying to learn. <laughs> at some point, we just say, like, this is good enough. And we've just been yeah. repeating what we know. So it's the same thing with any other skill. Well, I think that that makes a perfect segue to talking about the, the role of feedback in getting better at something. And I think that, you know, you make two distinctions, which, I, you know, I think are really important here. One is, you know, feedback based on process versus outcome and yes. the importance of taking feedback seriously, but not personally. And, and you know, I think the, the first is what I want to do. The serious, not personal. I think that's a huge issue for a lot of creative people. Mm-hmm. Yes, 100%. So um, let's say you write another book. And to you, is your best book. This is the best prose you've ever wrote. Uh, it's well-organized. Everything's great about it, but then the public doesn't like it. Um, so one thing is the process, the quality of the process, and another thing is the quality of the outcome. So not because it's not the most popular work you do, it means that that you did wrong. It's like you, you made your best work. It's just that it didn't have the same uh, popularity as the other ones, but that's beyond your control. And the way this affects us in sports is, let's say, a hockey team played the best hockey they've ever played, but they lost. Something happened. It could be some something out of luck. Uh, but then if they lose and then they take that loss as saying, hey, we need to redesign the way we're playing because we lost. And that's all that matters. Like, no, you played the best hockey you've ever played. You're doing it right. You just happen to have lost. But that doesn't mean you have to rework everything you've been doing great and also sometimes losing means you're pushing your limits so if if i'm into tennis and i'm playing the best tennis ever but then i'm playing much better players i'm gonna be losing so that's outcome feedback but the fact that i lost doesn't mean that i'm not getting better it's just i need to separate the two the way i played and then the outcome of the match they're different and we need to look at both of them to get the full picture Mm -hmm. yeah 
So naturally, I think the, the thing that follows from that is if you do anything for a long enough period, you're eventually going to hit challenges. And um, you talked about setbacks. Uh, I think that, you know, we've had a lot of discussions on this show about overcoming setbacks. I think the thing that struck me most was hitting plateaus. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you actually make use of that time when you hit a plateau and how do you get past it? Right. So I thought that there are different kinds of plateaus. One of them is the, um, let's call it the, I'm not trying hard enough anymore plateau. So sometimes we plateau because we're not pushing ourselves anymore. And this happens a lot in, let's say, bodybuilding, which I'm a fan of too. So I train every day and sometimes I'll go weeks without um, adding more weight. And I could say that's a plateau because, but I'm not forcing myself. I know I'm not giving it my all. So it's not really a plateau in the sense that uh, your your skills got stuck. It's just that you're not trying hard enough anymore. And that's why you're not improving. You got comfortable. You got complacent. So that's one type of plateau. Another type of plateau that I talk about is the um, the tools plateau. So if you're into photography, there's only so much you can do with a cell phone. Like at one point, you have to upgrade your, your tools um, for you to develop other parts of the skill. Same in motorsports. I cannot race a uh, like a 500cc motorcycle and expect to to get really good at it. I mean, at one point, I need more power. I need to keep pushing myself, and it's not a it's not an excuse to go buy more expensive stuff. But sometimes, what we use, like we've outgrown it, and then we have to move on. So that's another type of plateau. A third type of plateau is the um, the technique plateau. So maybe you're doing something wrong. Something in your technique is off. And let's go back to the uh, example of bodybuilding. So maybe you plateaued on your deadlift. Maybe there's something wrong in your technique. And at that point, you need to engage someone to help you. You need the help of some uh, a coach or you have to film yourself or you, you have to really study what you're doing to find if there are any glitches in, in your technique. So let's take an example of like Target Woods who redesigned his swing so many times. And he did it because he thought he could be better. So he felt his current swing at that point was holding him back. And that's why he had to change it. So that's the technique plateau. And that's kind of the hardest to, to get past it. And then the last one is the real plateau, which is every time we level up, our mind does need a time to consolidate that new, newly gained territory before we can level up again. Because in, in the first level up, we're still kind of clumsy on that higher level. We're still making a couple of mistakes. Sometimes we get it right, sometimes we don't. So our mind is kind of solidifying and occupying that territory we conquered before we can move on to conquer higher. So those are the types of plateaus and that's kind of how you deal with them. Okay. So that takes us, I think, from the fact that you we've now learned a skill. How do you go from skill and proficiency to mastery? All right. So here's the way I like to think about it. The gods of mastery demand human sacrifice. And it can't come mm-hmm. from anyone else but you. Thing is that if you find your calling, it's a sacrifice you willingly make. So mastery doesn't happen by chance. I've never heard of anyone that's like, hey, I just kind of became a master just, just suddenly or just out of chance. It is a decision. Um, it is a commitment. You're putting the work every single day. Um, it becomes such a big part of your life and you would think that for some people it's easy to do, but it's not. I, I talk about Usain Bolt and how difficult it was for him to go to train every day. And he, he says, it's harsh. You wake up and you know you're going to be pushing yourself and that's not enjoyable. And sometimes you wake up and you say, I don't want to go. It's going to be so hard, but you have to. And you would never imagine Usain Bolt saying things like that. You see it running and smiling and doing his poses. And you think, oh man, that guy just really loves running. Yeah, he loves running, but it's, it's also tough for him and it's also torturing. And that's kind of the path that we need to take. And taking on this idea of like the mindset of a champion to become one. So medals and trophies and all that is only the recognition of mastery, but it's not mastery itself. Mastery is in the process, is in doing the work, in committing yourself to a skill and making it part of your life which is also very satisfying, like our hobbies and things that we do can become our lifetime companions. Um, But if we do want to take it to that level, there is sacrifice and there is commitment and we can't avoid it. There is no shortcut. I've never read or heard of anyone that had any shortcut into mastery. It takes grueling and grueling hours and 
a level of commitment that would elude most people. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Wow. Um, well, this has been fascinating. Uh, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I would say uh, it reminds me of the quote from Nietzsche that he loved to do, the philosopher. He used to write this a lot and think about it a lot. Becoming who you are. So we add so much of the stuff into our way of thinking, into our way of expressing. We live so many borrowed dreams. And it's when we really become who we are that we're unmistakable. Mm, amazing. Well, um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, share your story, uh, wisdom, and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, uh, your book, and everything else that you're up to? Well, the book is called Learn, Improve, Master. And you can find that anywhere books are sold. Because Amazon will be the easiest place. Uh, so learning proved master. And then to reach out to me or social media and stuff like that, I guess the easiest place would be my blog, unlimitedmastery.com. And I have all the links to the social media and everything else. So yeah, for anyone listening and reach out, if you have any questions or just want to say hi, um, that'll be awesome. Thank you. All right. And for all of you listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.